0: Turn to the book of Thessalonians, chapter 1, the first epistle to Thessalonica. Starting this evening, a seven part series in this book, and we will be looking at this letter to a young church. We see tonight how this church has begun well, and we'll see unfold over the next weeks the encouragement and exhortation of the Apostle Paul as he teaches them, and instructs them from God. Let us hear God's word, First Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Our theme tonight is that the preaching of the gospel in the power of the Spirit is God's appointed means of transforming lives. The proclamation of the gospel, the telling forth, of the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit is the way God works to change people's lives, to bring them salvation, to give them new life. Paul writes to this fledgling church in Thessalonica to encourage them to continue in faith in Christ, to persevere, we will see, even in suffering and affliction, and to grow in assurance that God is at work in their midst. And to look with expectation, as we see the conclusion, of chapter one, with, with expectation and hope in the coming of Jesus Christ again. And as Paul begins this letter, he reminds them of how the Word of God came to them with the power of the Holy Spirit, and how they genuinely received that gospel, that they turned to God from idols, he says, with strong evidence of the fruit of faith, the fruit of the Spirit of God in their lives. We want to see two main points from our text and then draw two points of application from it as well. Our first point is this. The preaching of the gospel came with power. The preaching of the gospel came with the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. We really need to turn back to Acts 17 to be reminded of what a young church this was. In Acts 17, verses 1 through 9, we have Luke's description, a brief description of the gospel coming to Thessalonica. I'm not going to read all of it to you, but we see there that for three Sabbath days, the Apostle Paul and his companions preached the Word of God there and explained what Jesus Christ did. And as they proclaim it, some of the Jews were persuaded to believe in Christ. And Luke remarks that a great many of the devout Greeks and not a, lead, a few of the leading women came to Christ as well. So some of the Jews came to Christ and other what we call God-fearers who were loosely connected to the synagogue came to Christ as well. But then persecution immediately arose and Luke describes the opposition. And so Paul and Silas... Leave by night and go to Berea and interestingly I was looking on a map this week about how far it is from Thessalonica to Berea because some of the Jews from Thessalonica followed them to Berea to continue to make trouble for them there and it looked to me on the map that it was about 60 or 70 miles it wasn't just a mile over to the next little town it was a long way so they were active in pursuing and trying to disrupt the gospel going forward And so that's Luke's brief summary. Very young church. Paul had been there, Paul and his companions, for three weeks. They have to flee. Paul goes to Berea, preaches the gospel one Sabbath day there, and then because trouble comes from the leaders there in Thessalonica, that he flees from there as well and goes by ship about 300 miles south to Athens. He leaves Silas and Timothy back at Berea, and he comes to Athens. He's alone there. We know the famous story in the book of Acts about him preaching the gospel in the the Areopagus. And then he goes to Corinth and has a dream. The Lord tells him to be bold and follow through there. And for a year and a half, he remains at Corinth preaching the gospel with great freedom and God using that. And it's while he is at Corinth that he writes to Thessalonica. It hasn't been long. Probably near the beginning of that time there. A month or two maybe. So this is a very young church. But they've been established by the gospel. And the first thing that we see here is this point about Paul emphasizing there's been genuine conversion. The gospel has come with power. And our two main points describe that from really two points of view. The first is that it came with power in terms of the apostles preaching of the gospel. Especially we see that in verses 5 and 6. He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's talking about the fruit of the gospel in their life he 's giving thanks to them to God for them in fact, verses two through five are all one continuous sentence in the Greek, but all translations usually break that up some and um, he's remembering them we see him remembering their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope and in fact, he says that that evidence of their reception of the gospel is very evidence that they've been chosen by God of their election. We might ask the question, how do I know I'm elect? How do I know I'm chosen by God? It's said that Abraham Lincoln wrestled and struggled with that, whether he was chosen by God and elect or not. And the answer that scripture gives to that question is not that you somehow can see into the secret counsels of God And know the secret mind of God in somehow. No, the evidence for being chosen by God is that you believe in Jesus Christ. That you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and show forth evidence of that in a changed life to some degree. Not perfect, but changed. And so Paul is encouraging them. And he's talking about and giving thanks for their... uh, the fruit of faith and love and hope in their lives. And he says, because of the gospel coming with power, we know God has chosen you. It's evident, because the gospel came to you. And then in verse 5, he's talking about the gospel came not just in word, it did come in word. He's not minimizing the fact that the gospel came in, in truthful declaration of who Jesus Christ was and what he did. But there's these three three phrases, these three words that uh, describe how it came not only in word, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And most commentators take the view that Paul is primarily describing his own experience, his subjective experience of preaching the gospel, of telling the gospel to them and knowing that the Holy Spirit is at work. Everyone who's ever preached hopefully knows something of this, knows something that it's not the preacher's wisdom or power or strength or persuasiveness that brings fruit. It's the Holy Spirit at work. And preachers certainly cry out to God for this, this power of the Spirit to use their words. But anyone who shares the gospel, teaches the gospel, uh, good news clubs telling the gospel to kids, anyone who seeks to, by the power of the Spirit, tell others about Jesus Christ, knows something of this experience of God working through you. Yes, it's a subjective thing, but it's very real. And the Apostle Paul knew something of this, and he says, look, when we were with you, and we were declaring to you who Jesus Christ was, and you received that to some extent, and and as we preached, there was this sense of power it was not mere word. Interesting in 1 Corinthians 2, when he's talking about when he came to Corinth, he says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He's talking about secular rhetoric and, and the power of somebody who just has the power to manipulate words as the Greeks were good at. He says, they did. my words didn't come in that way, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. In fact, Paul would later talk about the fact that he, he wasn't a trained, professional speaker in that sense. He was weak. He came with trembling and fear. He knew he was dependent on the Holy Spirit. And so he writes in Romans 1:16: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. That's the kind of power that accompanying the preaching of the word. It, it came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was present to work. And with this idea of with, with full conviction. Now, you might say that that applies to the people receiving it. But I believe, as most commentators believe, that Paul is saying that he knew the power of the Spirit as he spoke with the conviction that God gives. Some of you may go to a church or have been to a church when the preacher has a chat with you or talks to you about certain things, and there's very little sense that the sermon is based on the word of God. But the apostolic preaching that we see exemplified here, and that all of us who seek to preach the word of God desire to do as we stand before you and preach is that there would be a sense of conviction that this is the very word of God being proclaimed. Paul says, there was that sense when I came to you that this is the very word of God declaring the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that he died and rose again. The preaching of the gospel in power. It is not just so many mere human words that the Holy Spirit is at work and somehow Paul could subjectively sense this. He was aware of it. I don't know if it was the same thing or not, and I don't think it's a mystical thing, but maybe it was something like the fact that when the woman touched the hem of Jesus' robe, and he sensed the power had gone out from him. Maybe it wasn't exactly like that, but it may, something like that. That, And every preacher knows the experience that you come with your um, limited knowledge and all your best efforts to study and prepare, but you know that unless the Holy Spirit visits and accompanies what you do, it's all in vain. Paul's saying our preaching was not in vain. It came in power. And so, Paul is describing this to them. We need to pray for this. We need to pray for this as we seek to make Jesus Christ known. We need to pray for this as we continue to seek God in his word. I am reminded of the testimony of a young man during the Great Awakening by the name of Cornelius Winter as an example of this. Cornelius came to be an assistant to the great evangelist George Whitfield later in his life. But as a young man, Cornelius heard about George Whitfield. This was a young man born of poor parents and early in life he was left an orphan. And after a time in a London charity school and some months in a workhouse, he was taken into the home of a relative who was a drunken man, a vicious man, who made the boy labor and work really hard and kept him hungry and and would beat him and crushed his spirit so that this young man wanted to die. At age 13, he writes about his experience later in life. He attended a service at the church where Whitfield regularly preached. Because he had often heard George Whitfield derided, he expected to see kind of a circus-like event. He thought it was just going to be something he could laugh at with his friends. But he was struck and surprised when he went there for the first time. And he says, to quote him, I was more peculiarly struck with the largeness of the congregation, the solemnity that sat upon it, the melody of the singing, Mr. Whitfield's striking appearance and his earnestness in preaching. Note that sense of earnestness. I think that's something about the, the apostle speaking about that the, there. From this time prejudice had no more place in my heart. Mr. Whitfield became increasingly dear to me and I embraced all opportunities to hear him. So, he's 13 at that point when that first experience that takes place and 5 years go by. He's 18 now. He writes, Yet I had no knowledge of the evil of sin and the depravity of my nature. But on the 9th of, 9th of April, 1760, being the Wednesday in Easter week, as I was playing at cards with my fellow servants, recollecting I might that evening hear Mr. Whitfield, I broke off in the midst of the game. So here he is. He's learned something of the truth of the gospel, and he's playing cards, and he knows, I need to go hear the word of God preached. It was a night much to be remembered. I have reason to hope the scales of ignorance then fell from my eyes. A sense of my misery opened gradually to me, and I diligently inquired what I should do to be saved. The text I well remembered was 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one. The introduction to the sermon, Come, my brothers, we have from Sunday till yesterday been meditating upon the resurrection of our Lord. It is now time that we should think about our own. And then he says, Could I recite the whole sermon? and it should be read acceptably, it would want the energy, which was so very peculiar to the preacher, that a resemblance is nowhere to be found. But it was God in the preacher that made the word efficacious. To him be the glory. Isn't that interesting? He says, if I I memorized the sermon I heard that night, and I could speak it and read it to you, it wouldn't be the same. Because it was God making those words efficacious and powerful in my life. To God be the glory. And from that point on, Cornelius grows in the Lord, and in a matter of about six or eight years, he becomes an assistant to Whitfield. A testimony of a changed life. And so there's that power of the gospel as it's proclaimed. But the second point we see is the reception of the gospel was accompanied by fruit. The reception of the gospel in the Thessalonians was accompanied by fruit. We see this in a number of spots. We see it in verse 2 and 3 where Paul is giving thanks to them and he talks about three major areas that he's already seen in their lives. He says, we remember before our God and Father your work of faith and each of these constructions, probably should be interpreted as the second word is the source of the first. So it would be the work of faith, the work that sprung from their faith, and the labor of love coming from their love, and their steadfastness of hope, the kind of perseverance that comes from hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, hope, and love. In 1 Corinthians, love is last for emphasis because Paul is emphasizing love. But here, hope is last out of prominence. And Thessalonica, the book of Thessalonians, is going to emphasize our expectant hope in the return of Jesus Christ. It's put there for emphasis. But further on down, we see him describe more in more depth this fruit of their lives. In verse 6, he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the holy spirit so now he's talking about how they received the gospel he says they received it in much affliction and he's particularly thinking here of the persecution that broke up that broke out immediately that there was a very there was a costliness we are not used to this to this degree maybe some of you young People in school know especially what this is like, that if it becomes known in a secular school where you go to school that uh, you're a Christian, people might mock or might laugh at you. But persecution is not too serious in the United States. But right away for them, it was accompanied with affliction. But notice how Paul links to that with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know it's the true fruit of the Spirit because even in affliction... There's this abiding sense of joy. And then he goes on to describe that they became an example. And he says, it's not only just Macedonia, which is where their town was, but Achaia, which is further south, another state, we might say. And it's even spread everywhere. The word's gone forth. Look at the fruit of their lives. He, he says at the end of verse 8, so that we need not say anything. And then he describes really the essence of their conversion in verse nine. For they themselves, that's those who have heard the reports, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. What is that? And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. There's the essence of conversion. Conversion. And so we can describe the, the reception of the gospel in three categories of fruit here. The first is they manifested genuine repentance and faith. They turned to God from idols. Their whole lives up until that point had been in darkness and blindness to the true God and they served idols and they prayed to these idols and to whatever degree they hoped in them, they hoped that these idols would make their lives better. And the idols might be different from the kind of idols that typical Americans worship and serve, but fundamentally, it's the same thing. Trying to cope with life, trying to make life work by serving idols, by trusting in the things of this life instead of the living and true God. So they turned from idols, but it wasn't just a turning away from idols, it was a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he had done. And serving him, repenting of sins, trusting in him, submitting their lives to him. So the first evidence was they manifested genuine repentance and faith. They became followers of Christ, disciples of Christ. But secondly, they manifested the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the manifestation of of faith and love and hope And joy in affliction. Clearly, what did not happen in their lives was suddenly a trouble-free life. Sometimes people get the idea that if you come to Christ, then everything will go well. That's far from what happened in their lives. They had just come to Christ a matter of days or weeks and suddenly persecution comes. But in the midst of that suffering, there is this beautiful gem of the fruit of the Spirit that begins to appear in their lives. Clearly, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, the other kind of fruit was they manifested a fundamental change in the direction of their lives. There was a reorientation of their lives, and this is certainly part parcel of repentance and faith. But this idea that they turned from God, uh, from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God there's a sense of following and serving and waiting for his son, Jesus Christ. And in verse three, there's this sense of their work of faith, their labor of love. You know, someone has said that sometimes work is a joy. And we could say, well, um, work of faith is something that just sprung up from their lives. But the, the emphasis on that second Phrase, their labor of love, that word labor has with it the idea of toilsomeness, the idea of something that's hard, something that's costly, and it, it only comes from genuine love. And Paul's saying, We already began to see this in your midst this willingness to count it a cost to make Christ known, to follow him, to serve him, to testify to him. There was a fundamental change in the manifestation of their lives, in the direction of their lives. And so their witness went forth with power in bold testimony to the Lord. Maybe some of you have read the books by Lee Strobel. The Case for Christ was his first book. Then he wrote The Case for Faith, and then The Case for Creator. He's written a number of books. He's a journalist by, by trade, but he describes in the case for Christ, his conversion. And he says something shocking happened to him in 1979. He was living life as an unbeliever, as a self-declared atheist, a journalist, doing his best to live selfishly in his life. And what happened is his wife, Leslie, came to know Christ. And in his words, he says, Leslie stunned me in the autumn of 1979 by announcing that she had become a Christian. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst, feeling like the victim of a bait-and-switch scam. I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. Instead, he says, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. Eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in my wife's attitudes, so I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. And he talks about how for over 600 days, he read everything he could get to search out was Jesus Christ who the Bible said he was. He read all kinds of books and reports and studies, ancient literature, archaeological things. He said that he had been trained at Yale Law School, so he applied all his training to this. And he also talks about how at one point he finally goes to his wife's church. He had been putting it off for a long time, and finally he goes. He's expecting to hear kind of a moralistic sermon preached about be good and try to do your best. And he's shocked because he hears the gospel preached. It turns his world upside down. And after over 600 days of hearing the gospel at the church preached and investigating it himself, he says by November 8th, 1981, his legend thesis, the thesis that Jesus' resurrection was a legend to which I had doggedly clung for so many years, had been thoroughly dismantled. He talked how it was totally dismantled by the clear historical evidence. And he says, the atheism I had embraced for so long buckled under the weight of historical truth. It was a stunning and radical outcome, certainly not what I had anticipated when I had embarked on this investigation. And so he talks about receiving Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, coming to Christ in repentance and faith. And he talks about John one twelve. He went to that verse. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God. And he talks about Jesus paying the price for his sins. I'll just quote one more part for you. As he describes this, he says, and there was plenty of wrongdoing. I'll spare myself the embarrassment of going into details, but the truth is that I had been living a profane "'Drunken, self-absorbed, and immoral lifestyle. "'In my career, I had backstabbed my colleagues "'to gain a personal advantage "'and had routinely violated legal and ethical standards "'in pursuit of stories. "'In my personal life, I was sacrificing my wife "'and children on the altar of success. "'I was a liar, a cheater, and a deceiver.'" My heart had shrunk to the point where it was rock hard toward anyone else. My main motivator was personal pleasure. And ironically, the more I hungrily sought after it, the more elusive and self-destructive it became. Here he's describing his whole life, his heart laid bare. And he knew he was a sinner. And he knew his only hope was Jesus Christ. What a testimony that really exemplifies the verse that describes how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Lee Strobel would say amen to that. And so the power of the gospel brings forth fruit in people's lives. Two points of application for us as we close. The first is this, to ask ourselves, have I genuinely believed in Jesus Christ? Have I understood the message of the gospel? Have the words of the gospel made sense to me? And have they come with power to me? Have I trusted Jesus Christ? Have I placed my trust and faith in him alone? Have I turned from my selfish orientation to idols and sinful self? Is there some evidence of the fruit of the spirit in my life? Not perfection, Yes, there are many struggles and sufferings in the Christian's life, many ups and downs, but is my ultimate comfort, the unfailing, protecting, preserving, electing, we might say, all-conquering love of God in Jesus Christ? Is my hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? That's the fruit of genuine faith. So have I genuinely believed in Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, My hope and prayer for you is that you would not let another day go by if you haven't trusted in him, that you would trust and put your life, give your life to Christ. But secondly, do I continue to see the Christian life as a walk of faith, as a fight of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit? Paul is encouraging these young Christians to press on. We're going to see it unfold as we study through this book. And walking by faith is fundamentally different from the way You and I naturally experience life. Walking by faith is different than the natural way we enjoy the things of this earth and experience the things of this earth by faith or by sight and not by faith. The contrast is we walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 4. Think about how you enjoy the pleasures of this earth, a good meal. It's not too hard to enjoy is it? It doesn't take a lot of work to enjoy a good meal. Or maybe you were out for a walk today looking at the beautiful sunshine and it just naturally, it's a blessing. Or like I did the other yesterday, I was walking, was watching one of the college football games. I just, It's a beautiful thing watching those long passes go down the field. And, and I see the commentators come on at halftime and they're so um, excited about football. And, and, and the people who have that jobs, so I feel like those jobs. I feel like they love to do those jobs because they love football so much. It's not even work to them in one sense. You know, that's how the things of this world are. That's how we experience the comforts of this life. That's how we long for and hope for the everyday aspirations of life, whether it's marriage or family or job or success or relationships or to be appreciated and respected and loved, all those kinds of things are fundamentally different in our experience than walking by faith. It doesn't map exactly on to the way we experience earthly things. There's not that immediate gratification. Walking by faith in Jesus Christ involves repentance and going the way of the cross. And we might say delayed gratification ultimately because we know that we live in the already, but not yet. We groan We who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. And so there's this letting go of and putting to death sin. And so how is God calling you to walk by faith this week? If you receive Jesus Christ, so walk in him, in your adversity, in maybe chronic disappointments and hardships in your life. Or in walking the pathway of love and forgiveness and forbearance and patience in relationships. Maybe in your marriage, maybe with your children, maybe with extended family or co-workers or a neighbor. Or maybe it's in serving others and not yourself so much. The list goes on and on. The Thessalonians had just begun the Christian journey. They were only a few weeks into it. God had turned their lives upside down with the power of the gospel, but already Paul was teaching them to continue to walk by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, God is continuing to do that in our lives as well, in every believer who has come to trust in Jesus Christ. May you so walk in his power this week. Amen. Father. We thank you for the gospel as it's come to each of our lives. We could each tell the stories those of us who know Christ could recount and rejoice in the way that you brought us to yourself, whether it was as a young child, whether it was in teenage years, whether it was 50 years ago, whether it was last week. We thank you for those grand themes of the gospel coming with power, to eyes and to hearts that are darkened in sin and blind to eternal things. And yet, by the power of your spirit and by the proclamation of the Son of God, there is life through Jesus. And we become new babes in Christ. And so, we walk and we pray for your power to help us this week in the journey. We know that your appointed pathway is suffering and hardship and yet you give many joys along the way. But teach us, we pray, greater faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.